20 years ago today, actually 20 years ago yesterday, uh, the world definitely stood still for an awful uh, lot of us. In fact, I, I had to really think about it um, and, uh, and consider the fact that, hey, not everybody in the room was even alive 20 years ago. Definitely uh, I'm old moment for sure. Uh, to think about the fact that two of our campus pastors were under the age of 10. That's, that's pretty rough, right? Yeah. Uh, so having said that, I know it, it's different for many of us. Many watching at home can remember the very place they were when they heard the first word of the attacks on the Twin Towers. Um, others of you may not have that kind of memory. It's just the memory of the years that followed and maybe the memory of the remembrance of 9-11. But man, the world changed that day. It really did. I know that's a cliche kind of understatement in, in a lot of ways, but it really did in a lot of ways. And um, today in particular, I just wanted to, because of all the, the videos and, and reminders of that day, I wanted to acknowledge it because it's such a significant moment in the history of our nation, but then even beyond that, it brought to light um, our, our need for and appreciation of the men and women who serve us in law enforcement, firefighters, um, you know, EMTs, all emergency response. Man, these, these men and women put their lives on the line all the time for us, and, uh, and it's not until events like that happen that you really see it, or maybe in, in an event in your individual life when you really see it. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to thank them, but also those men and women who serve our country, the armed forces, those who've responded and have been responding and defending for all this time, not only in the last 20 years, but for decades previous to that. Would you just join me in acknowledging your appreciation for all those men and women today? We praise the Lord. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray um, in this moment. Lord, we love you, and I, I just thank you for, God, the opportunity to live in a free country. I know we take it for granted so many times, and I, I think that it's uh, in times like this when we were challenged to remember an event. God, uh, I, I think sometimes we, we forget other things we need to remember. We don't just need to remember a bad thing that happened 20 years ago yesterday, but God, we need to remember the unity that actually came as a result of terrible circumstances. Lord, we came together. People called out to you on that day more than they ever had. And Lord, it felt like this country really had, had a unified message on its knees, praying in complete dependence on you for that moment. So Lord, I pray instead of just remembering an event, a tragic event, we would remember the unity that we experienced. Even the the dependency we remembered and acknowledged on that day. I pray you would remind us continually that we need you. We pray that you would bless our country as our country turns to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I wanted to mention something as you're turning in your Bibles. Turn in, turn on your Bibles to 2 Samuel. We've left 1 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel. While you're turning in, turning on your Bibles, 2 Samuel. I want to mention this evening at 5, 
some of you uh, knew Dan Taylor very well. Others of you may not have known him because he was our senior adult pastor. Uh, you probably knew of him but didn't know him personally. Um, pastoral care, if you were in the hospital for any length of time, chances are Dan came and was ministering to you. He passed away this last summer. And, um, and during that time, I asked Miss Judy if she would give us an opportunity to celebrate Dan's service to our church in a, in a different way than just the funeral. And so she agreed. And so tonight at 5, this evening at 5 p.m., we're just going to have a drop-in reception in honor of Dan and Judy's 10 years that they gave uh, the work of God in our church. And uh, Judy obviously is going to be here for the reception It'd be a, an encouragement to her if you're able to come and just drop in anytime between five and six. There'll be cake, so cake's always good, amen? Cake and pie. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, come in, and that'd be awesome for you to drop in, encourage her, and be a blessing to remember Dan. Um, man, we've been in the crown. This is week four. And so the crown, the basic foundational idea of it, looking at the life of David, recognizing that the crown was never really David's. It never really belonged to David. Even though providentially God appointed him in 1 Samuel, this prophet named Samuel went and appointed uh, David king or anointed David to become king. And then later on, he was appointed. Then later on, we actually heard the story of the power of God in David's life as this little shepherd boy uh, comes uh, into the spotlight as he's fighting this Goliath, who is this massive human being. And he defeats him against all odds by the power of God. Not just the providence, but the power of God. But then last Sunday we talked about the story where David went into a cave and, and he could have taken the life of Saul. He was running for his life because Saul was after him, trying to kill him. But David acknowledged and recognized that God had a plan and his plan did not include him taking things or matters into his own hands. It's what we all tend to do. So the first three messages are actually good news about David's story. I mean, who wouldn't want to be David when you're anointed king? Who wouldn't want to be David when you're killing a giant, right? And who wouldn't want to be David when you're actually doing the right thing and resisting taking matters into your own hands, but you're yielding to the plan of God, even if it means pain, even if it means suffering. And so that's what David was experiencing. Today, we're going to see David at his worst. Today, we're going to see David not on the mountain, but in the valley. And again, it doesn't matter if you're at home today. I want you to really, if you can, go and find your copy of God's Word and have it out. Scripture's always on the screens, but I think it's so important for us to recognize and acknowledge the value of having it in front of us so that we can follow along. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and a lot of Scripture to cover. So I want you to really pay attention today. Uh, and as we look, look at this, here's the bottom line, a basic idea, is that the grace of God <clears throat> was necessary when we came to Christ at salvation. But our need for grace didn't stop when we were born again. It's kind of like a, a baby. When a baby is born, or when a baby is actually conceived, he or she grows inside the mother's womb. And I mean, if, it's such an elementary thing to say, but it's absolutely true, that baby is dependent on his or her mother. Without the mom, the nutrients that's coming from the mom, the baby wouldn't make it. I mean, the, the baby is completely dependent on the mother. But even after birth, the baby is still dependent on mom and dad. Hopefully dad comes in there, right? Takes some of the load. But, but it's dependency still there. In fact, you could say it's no less dependent on the mom than before. Dependency just changed a little bit. The process of dependency 
But the need for the mom is no less great. And so here's what we recognize. The, the baby, even at one or two, can do very little on its own. It's in great need of its parents. As a believer, we don't really deny the fact that we needed God's grace at salvation. But I think that where we mess up most of the time and where we become vulnerable in the area of temptation in our life is we start thinking somehow when we're a Christian, we get saved and then we just move on. We get saved and we kind of get on with our lives. We, we get saved and we, we are less dependent on God after we're saved than we were to be saved. And that is not only a misunderstanding, it is a spiritual tragedy that will lead you down a pathway of destruction. And so I, I want us to prevent what happens to David in our own lives. Now here's the thing, David does something, we're going to look at him and we're going to see this extreme example. He technically commits adultery and murders somebody in this one story. And so you may say, well, Wayne, I've never done those things, and nor will I ever do those things. And so my life, I'm good. This message is going to be for somebody else. And I want you to really just do business with God. Open up your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to convict you, because I promise you today he will if you do. Because here's the thing. We like to classify sin. We like to kind of uh, put categories out there and make this sin worse than that sin. And usually the sin that's not a big deal is the one that we have. You know, the temptation that we're vulnerable to is usually the one that we classify as not a big deal. It's one that's not, it's like an elementary sin, right? It's not, it's not big deal sin. It's not a sin that's going to cause the death of a child, like in this case. And so we tend to minimize that, and we tend to think when we hear examples like this, that we're, this, this is not applicable to me. This is going to be in all of our business, all right? This is, this is you that we're talking about. This is me that we're talking about. And if we want to leave this place having heard from God, we need to open up our heart to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, speak to me. God, speak to me. So 2 Samuel, look at chapter 11. Let's just begin reading in verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, in other words, the whole army, and they ravaged the Ammonites. And besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So get the picture here. (laughs) When kings are supposed to go to battle, David stayed at home. When kings go to fight wars, David stayed inside of his house and didn't go with his men. And it happened in verse 2, late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful David sent and inquired about the woman and one said is not this Bathsheba the the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her now we need to make sure we understand the severity of what we're talking about there's in no way a chance that we can excuse this away and say David probably didn't know who she was or David didn't know she was married. No, I mean, he just heard it, right? I mean, like he said, who is this? They said, oh, that's Uriah's wife. He said, I want her. I want her. Go get her. It says he, they took her. Didn't say they requested her presence, right? They took her to David. And so there's a lot of, lot of conversation and discussion about you know, did he know this? Did he know that? Uh, was, she, was she okay with it? Honestly, at the end of the day, sin is sin, and the details of the matter don't change it or make it worse or better. The fact is, it's sin. 
David is guilty. Look what happens in verse 5. It tells us that Bathsheba actually became pregnant. Now, at this point, what happens is, is sin begets sin, and he begins to, to un, uh, intentionally kind of sweep things under the rug, to do everything he can to cover it up, do everything he can to clean up his mess. And in verse 6, David sent for Uriah. Now, it may seem odd that he's sending for the husband of the woman, but David sends for Uriah, her husband, because he attempts to get him to go lay with Bathsheba. Now, I know some of you may think, well, this is, this is church, man. What we, this is the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up, all right? And so, so David literally tries to, to send him in. And you may say, well, why is that? Because he wanted it to appear that the child was Uriah's. So he's trying to, to manipulate things. He's trying to twist things uh, again, taking matters into his own hands, trying to cover up his sin, trying to cover up where he failed and, uh, and then oddly enough, I'm sure David was not expecting this, Uriah was an honorable man. He was actually a man who was committed not only to Israel, but to be quite honest, it was very, he was very committed and, and, and he was surrendered to the king himself. The king who had actually taken his wife. And so here is Uriah, an honorable, committed man to Israel, and he refuses to sleep with his wife. He refuses to go in to his wife uh, while his men are fighting on the front lines. So he, he refuses his own pleasure because he wants to make sure that he remains an honorable man. So what did David do? Look at verse 14. This is detestable, man. David sent Uriah, it says, to the forefront of the hardest fighting. David didn't just send him back. David sent him to the front lines. But then it goes on to say in, in, uh, in verse uh, 14... That he tells Joab, the commander, when you put him on the front lines, I want you to draw back, draw back from Uriah so that he may be struck down and die. This is extreme. This is tough. It's hard for us to see. This is the same guy that was anointed and appointed by God. This is the same guy who's, who's slinging the, the rock in and hitting Goliath in the forehead. How is this the same guy? How is this the same guy who wouldn't even, who wouldn't even harm Saul in, in the cave when he could have taken his life? What has happened to David? Because this is not the same man. It's, he's not acting the same way. And so David literally, it says in verse 17, takes his life because he records that, that Uriah is killed. So everything went according to David's plan and Uriah dies and David has not only committed adultery, but now he's also guilty of murder. In verse 27, it kind of adds insult to injury. When the morning was over, what morning? The morning of Bathsheba for the death of her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought Bathsheba to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But I want you to look at verse 27. And I don't want you to separate yourself from it. This is so easy for us to say, we're just reading a story in the Bible. I mean, we're reading a story of our life. The thing that David has done displeased the Lord. No matter what the sin is, doesn't matter what temptation you're vulnerable to, doesn't matter what sin that I'm or you're guilty of, listen, it is always displeasing to God. It's never okay. It's never okay. It doesn't matter who approved it. It doesn't matter what preacher you got to agree with you on it. Listen, what matters is it displeases God. 
Sin always displeases God. Now, a lot of things I'm going to say are not going to be very popular. I'm not going to say you're going to think they're not true. I'm just going to say you're not going to want to hear them. Because here's the truth. We don't really want to hear the truth that David hears. We, we would rather live our life in ignorance of our guilt. We would rather live our lives ignorance in ignorance of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But here's what we need to see. The best life that God has for you is a life in full acknowledgement of our sin and in complete repentance of it. That's the best life. And that, that's the best life. It's not that God's going to shower you with cars and houses and everything that you're praying for and that you've somehow defined what would be your perfect situation. That's not your best life. Your best life is surrendered to God. If that means hungry in the middle of a desert, if that means left for dead and abandoned by everyone else, if you're where God has called you to be, that is your best life. That is not a popular thing today. We live in a day that's so self-serving where even the Christian message somehow in North America has been so twisted to where it's all about us and somehow the gospel is all about us being wealthy and healthy. The fact of the matter is God never promises that. He doesn't promise that. What he does promise is that it will be good in his time and that, that he can be trusted with everything. And so David took matters into his own hands. David actually put the crown on. He forgot that the crown didn't belong to him. So David actually sat on the throne of his life that belonged to God alone. We're going to talk about four things real quickly in the scripture. And I mean quickly. You're going to have to listen fast, all right? These four things I'm going to go and give you. If you're on the app and you're taking notes... Um, go ahead and pull that up and you'll be able to type them in. I'm going to give them all to you right now. And then later on you can add to the notes and, and email them to yourself. Be helpful. Number one, here it is. Listen, temptation is always present. It doesn't matter what the, the sin. It doesn't matter what the temptation or the area of your life. It doesn't matter if it's a man, woman, boy, or girl in this room. Temptation is present in your life. Temptation is present in my life. It's always going to be present. Second thing we're going to talk about is that sin always has consequences. No matter what sin it is. No matter how many times we've sinned, doesn't matter if it's a lifestyle or if it's a one-time event, sin always has consequences. Third, accountability is always necessary. Accountability is always necessary. When we fall prey, it's because we have, we've given in by not allowing boundaries in our lives that actually set us free. But then fourth, we're going to talk about restoration and how restoration is always available. Restoration is always available. No matter what we face, no matter what we've done, God is not walking away from you. Look, the fact is he still offers restoration to you even in this moment. And you have an opportunity to say yes to that restoration today. First thing, let's back up real quick. Temptation is always present. Temptation is always present. David clearly went somewhere he was not supposed to be, right? I mean, where was he supposed to be? Well, it was a time when kings go out to war. This was a time where David should have been on the front lines. He should have been actually out there fighting with the men. And instead, he stayed back. Now, who knows if it was premeditated for the particular purpose of Bathsheba. I don't think the Bible says that for sure. I think that um, he probably had been on the roof before. <laughs> right? You know? He probably had been on the roof. He may have known what time uh, that uh, Bathsheba would have been bathing. I do not know the answer to that question. But even if it wasn't premeditated, there was a time where he came to a crossroads where he, he was confronted by temptation and he gave in. 
And so here's the thing. Temptation is always present. It doesn't matter how godly you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church and how you think maybe that's built up some kind of uh, resistance to the temptation. It's present, man. And it's constantly knocking at the door. And so if we're not careful, we'll forget about that. And we will go places we shouldn't go. Simple little statements I want to make. Two statements real quick. When you are where you shouldn't be, you'll be exposed to things you shouldn't see. Man, that, that's worth taking home right there, all right? When you are where you shouldn't be, you'll be exposed to things you shouldn't see. And here's the problem. The second part's actually more difficult because when you are where you shouldn't be and you're exposed to things you shouldn't see, you're much more likely to do things you shouldn't do. You're much more likely to say things you shouldn't say. You're much more likely to fall prey to the enemy. And so what's the answer? Don't go where you shouldn't go. Had David not been where he was, he would have never been tempted. He should have avoided the temptation. How could he have done that? Been where he was supposed to be. Be where a king is supposed to be. So what's that mean for me? Man, be where a Christian's supposed to be. Be what a follower of, of Christ is supposed to be. You know, I'm not talking about legalistic expectations. I'm just talking about the scriptural expectation. I'm, I'm talking about be the man or woman that God's called you to be. Don't fall prey to the cultural pressures. Don't try to change the rules because things are different in, in 2021 than they were 2,000 years ago. You know what? They're not different. People have always been imperfect. People have always wanted to twist things. David did. David tried to twist the standard. He tried to say, that doesn't apply to me. I'm the king after all. Can I make my own rules? I mean, isn't this crown on my head? And that's what we're doing in our lives when we change the rules. We're saying, I know what God's word says, but... But I'm going to really be in charge right now. I, I'm, hey, I, that throne really looks attractive. Why don't I sit on the throne for a while? That's what we're doing when we position ourselves in a, in a place of vulnerability to temptation. And so the fact of the matter is, we will, we, when we surrender in temptation, we choose to step on this slippery slope. You probably heard this quote before. Yeah, I tried to find out who to uh, give it credit for, but it's honestly multitudes of people have said it. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. That, you can take that to the bank. That is absolutely true. You may be looking at this temptation and it may be coming to you and you may, you may be like, hey, this is not going to be a big deal. It's not going to be a big price to pay. I promise you, you will pay more than you think you will. It will cost you more than you think you will. And, and look, sin always is attractive in the moment. In the moment, you're thinking it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth Otherwise, we would never sin. But in the moment, we think it's worth it. Sure, there's going to be a price to pay, but man, the enjoyment, the pleasure I will gain from this is, is so much worth all of the price that I'm going to pay. And the fact of the matter is, it's a miscalculation. It's a spiritual miscalculation, and, and we will lose the life God has for us if we're not wise in making the decisions when we come to that crossroads. But then also I want you to notice sin leads to sin that leads to sin. This is what David does. I mean, David sins, but then it leads to another sin. It's almost like this Pinocchio moment. You know what I'm saying? It's like one lie leads to another lie leads to another lie. Well, David's sin led to another sin that led to another sin. I mean, he was just trying. After he made the first mistake, he was trying to correct it by just ignoring it or sweeping it under the rug, not correcting it in the right way. But he was trying to just kind of get past it, trying to just say, you know what? Nobody's perfect. Let's start over. You know, reboot. All right? Let's, uh, new day. All right? Uh, and, and that's just not how things work. 
And so we understand that sin does lead to sin. And even in our own lives, sin leads to sin that leads to sin. When we make one mistake, it honestly never comes in, in a, a one-time package. Usually, we, we make the mistake over and over again. If not that one mistake, another mistake that, that's building on the other. Our flesh inevitably attempts to cover its own tracks. That's what we do. That's not what Christians do. That's, that's what human beings do. We don't want to be caught. We, we want to cover our tracks. We don't want people to know our business. And so as a result, we deny it. And here's the fact. Our denial ensures an ongoing vulnerability to the temptation. And it simply prolongs the, and compounds the inevitable consequences awaiting us at the end of our sin. So when we deny our weakness, when we deny our vulnerability, we are setting ourselves up for more failure. And here's the thing. I, I just, we need to be really op- open and honest. There is no one in this room today... There's no one watching online today that can say, Wayne, there is no area of vulnerability in my life. You're wrong. You're wrong. In your flesh, and if that comes out of your mouth or if that's even in your mind, listen, you're more vulnerable than anybody else. Because the the greatest weakness is the one that you don't even admit. Because that means you're, you're actually making decisions that are making you more vulnerable because you think that's not a weakness in your life and so you're going to do A, B, and C and it will eventually lead to sin. So you've got to make sure you're not walking out on the roof when you ought to be in the battle. So we see the first thing, temptation is always present. Second through fourth, they're going to be quick, all right? Sin always has consequences. In chapter 12, we see Nathan come to David, and he tells him a story. (laughs) Out of the blue, Nathan comes to David, and he says, Hey, there's a story of two men, David. David's like, Okay. All right, there's this one guy who's really rich, and he's got everything he wants. In fact, he has, I mean, a multitude of lambs. But then there's this poor guy who literally has one lamb. Like, again, this rich guy, tons of lambs. This poor guy, one lamb. And... To add on to that, this lamb is like a daughter to him. The Bible actually says that. I mean, he's like taking care of it. He's cared for it. Everybody in the family. I mean, they've got a nice bow on its horns or what? I don't know. Well, you know, it's weird. It's a, yeah, so, you know, this is a real special, it's almost like a pet lamb to him. And, but this traveler comes in and the traveler comes in to see the rich man. And the rich man didn't want to use or waste one of his lambs. And so instead he goes and he takes the, the one precious lamb from the poor man and he kills, he sacrifices it for the traveler. What should we do? Look what David says, man. David is like livid. All right. In chapter 12, verse five, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Isn't that the way we are? (laughs) When we come to church and we hear somebody preach, we're usually like, I sure hope Sally's listening in this morning. Boy, she really needs this one. (laughs) Did you know what John did? John last Friday, I'm telling you what, I'm hoping he's, because he fell prey to temptation, didn't he? That's what we like to do. You know, we like to point at everybody else. We like, and, and that's what David's doing. David's like, this guy needs to die. <laughs> this guy needs to die. What's Nathan say? Look at this in verse 7. Don't miss it. You are the man. 
You are the man. You are the man. Look, I, I know, again, this is not super popularity time. This is not where everybody's going to leave going, but it's just a real fuzzy feeling. That's the best time I've ever had in church. No, it's not that kind of message today. This is confrontational. This is a really tough word for all of us to hear because we need to hear this in a day where most Christians in America are running away from the truth of God's Word. Most Christians in America do not want to welcome. Look, if, if, if a pastor says anything that is remotely confrontational in many cases, the people pack up and go find another church because there's plenty of churches and there's plenty of pastors that won't tell you the truth. That's a fact. That's a fact. But Nathan didn't hold back. It was the king, guys. David is the king. And Nathan doesn't hold back. He says, you are the man. And so look, the circumstances may be different. The sin is no doubt going to be different in all of our cases. It may not be adultery. It may not be murder. But listen, I am the man. And you are the man. You are the woman. None of us are exempt. We can't take ourselves out of this. We're guilty as charged. We have all fallen short of God's glory, Romans tells us. So Paul, Paul nails this in the New Testament, telling us we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one, without the grace of God in our lives. Not just in conversion, not just in new birth. I'm talking about in living, in decision-making, in fighting the temptation to fall prey to the vulnerabilities in our life. We need the grace of God. That will not come as long as we're living in denial about the, the sin in our life. So we are the man. Look verse 10. Because here's, man, so many consequences. Therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, Nathan tells David. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you in your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors. Man, that's pretty harsh. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. My goodness, David is, is just honestly hearing all these consequences. Then in chapter 12, verse 14, Nathan informs David that because of his sin, his child will die. His child is going to die because of his sin. Now here's what we need to hear. The fact is, our sins different than David's and consequences obviously are going to vary there are some people who make terrible mistakes and it seems like the consequences of their sin isn't as bad as someone who sometimes has a less a severe sin in our mind. And, and, and why did this person have to pay that great of a price? And, and we don't always understand. Here's the fact. All that's up to God. All that's up to God. The con we don't determine the consequences. God determines the consequences. And we don't even know the, the consequences people are paying, the cost people are paying that we don't know. The private, their private and secret consequences that perhaps we're unaware of. But the fact is, uh, sin always has consequences. And, and this really screams for the need of accountability. The need for accountability. The last two are kind of in some ways, seems like a bad thing, but it's two good things. Accountability is necessary. Accountability is always necessary. Our sinful nature will always resist accountability. But it is accountability that ultimately provides a pathway to freedom from our bondage and temptation. And so if we're actually going to live in victory, if we're going to actually live above the waves instead of being consumed by them, if we're going to live on top of the temptation that we know is going to be in our lives, what we're going to have to do is 
embrace accountability. Now, what that what it looks like is a word that we don't like, boundaries. We all need boundaries. David needed accountability. He needed boundaries in his life to prevent him from going to the rooftop when Bathsheba was bathing. He should have had standards set up and protections and guardrails that prevented him from being vulnerable or putting himself in a vulnerable position. Because when he elevated himself and he thought, hey, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make this mistake, or maybe even if I do, I'm the king. What happens is we, we position ourselves in a position of vulnerability and we fall prey to the temptation. And so all of us are no different. We have to make sure that we don't trust ourselves so much that we don't build guardrails around our lives. Now, what do guardrails do? When you're going around a real curvy road, the guardrail keeps you from running off the side of the cliff. No one likes guardrails until they're about to run off the side of a cliff, right? And we love guardrails then because they just saved our life. And so the fact of the matter is guardrails, though they seem like they're restrictive, what they are is they're actually liberating Guardrails allow us to actually drive down the path that God has called us to without fear. We don't have to worry about running off the road because we're, we're inside the boundaries that God has set for us. And not only that, but we're going to actually hold ourselves accountable by giving our spouses permission to speak into that, to call us out when there are times where we're, we're doing our own thing. Well, I just don't want to, you know, that's none of my wife's business. Yes, it is. You... You gave yourself to her at marriage. They should have been like 400 women going, Amen, preacher. That's right. (laughs) But it goes both ways, right? Because, wife, you gave yourself to your husband at marriage. It's a mutual surrendering. It is a mutual submission to where you you have surrendered your right to privacy. You have nothing in your life that your spouse doesn't have full permission to hear or know. Now, some people may be upset after that, but that's just true. Accountability is necessary. And I promise you, if there's something I don't want my wife to know, it's because I'm about to mess up, brother. Y'all all right? I know she's, she's going, that's right, praise the Lord. That's right. That leads us to the last thing real quick, restoration. Man, this is good news. God doesn't leave you in your mess, man. God doesn't leave me in my mess. God doesn't leave me in the wreckage. Even when there's a guardrail and I have absolutely totaled out my car going around the curve, I underestimated this this point. I underestimated the violence of the curve in my life. But the guardrail kept me out of it. How can I be restored? How can I be? Maybe I went through the guardrail and I am in the wreckage of my own decision. How can I make sure that I find restoration? Listen to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't say, Nathan, I don't know what you're talking about, buddy. He said, I've sinned. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Listen to the words of Psalm 51, 10 through 12. This is a psalm that actually is, is uh, God, uh, David praying to God during this moment of repentance. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with your willing spirit. Listen, here's what David did. David actually repented. But in the midst of this repentance... It's a prayer we need to pray. 
Now, I don't think you should just hold the Bible up and pray, read the prayer, if you're not meaning it in your heart. But what should we do in a time of commitment after hearing this kind of message? We need to be able to say when we're in this place of commitment and invitation. We need to be able to say no matter where we are, if we're on the beach right now or riding down the road. We need to be able to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ignore the sin in my life anymore. I'm not going to push it away. I'm not going to sweep it under a rug. I'm not going to deny it. But I'm going to cry out to God. I'm going to say, God, would you create in me a clean heart? God, would you clean up this mess? God, would you, would you renew a right spirit in me? Because right now, my spirit isn't right, but I know you can make it right. God, would you renew a right spirit inside of me? And God, please don't cast me away. Don't cast me away from your presence. I need your presence. I don't want to run from you. I am running full speed into your arms. God, don't leave me. And Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I I desperately need to hear from your Spirit. I need the power of your Spirit that helped me slay the giant, that, that helped me resist killing the king. God, I need that same spirit. So Lord, would you restore to me not the joy of my sin, not the joy and pleasure of my momentary disastrous decision, but God, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? What is that? The joy of knowing you. God, would you help me remember? Would you help me remember who you are and what you've done for me? And in the process, uphold me. Uphold me with a willing spirit. What's this? Look, that's repentance. And in short, here's the answer. No repentance, no restoration. No repentance, no restoration. Oh, God, I want restoration. God, would you restore me? But I'm going to keep this. God, would you restore me? But I'm not willing to give up this. God, would you restore me? But no. No repentance, no restoration. Man, we ought to be crying out to God. Even now, Lord, we love you. I pray you would speak to us. God, our words are insufficient. They're not enough. God, there's no point in which we're going to ever get to a point where we say, man, I tell you what, I, I just don't feel convicted. Lord, there's so many areas of all of our lives where we fail you daily. Lord, I pray even now that you would give us, first of all, the wisdom and the boldness to open up our hearts for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Even give us now, God, that willingness to say, God, speak to me. God, would you shine a light in my darkness? Would you, would you show me where I fail you? But Lord, even now, I pray we would listen to you, that you would show us, God, that you would show us our Bathsheba, that you would show us our Uriah, that you would show us when we have failed you, and that we would repent and find restoration. Even now, God help us in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me?